0: Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get shocked.
1: And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously.
2: The scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world?
0: Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. I'm a sophomore at Santa Clara University, and on this show I'm going to interview some of the fascinating professors and students on the Santa Clara campus to learn more about their life experiences, passions, stories, and lessons learned. This is a very special episode because it is the first one ever, and I sat down with physics professor Phil Keston to learn more about his life and work. In this conversation, we cover how he discovered his passion for physics, how his experience as a rowing coach led him to Santa Clara University, his research projects, which include a story about an incredible mentor, uh, funny stories from the classroom. We talk about his journey of starting and scaling an educational software business, what advice he has for student entrepreneurs and much, much more. After a lot of planning and preparation, I'm excited to get this podcast off the ground, and I have many more exciting interviews that will come out in the upcoming weeks. Please let me know if you have any feedback or ideas of students or professors to interview. So thank you for taking the time to listen, and please enjoy the show. So today I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Phil Keston, who is the Associate Vice Provost and a Physics Professor at Santa Clara University. Last spring I had the honor of taking a class from Dr. Keston, and I really enjoyed both the class and his style, so I'm excited to hear more of his stories today, and I'm excited to have you on the show. So I'd love to start with your childhood experiences and who you were like growing up.
1: Well, I'll tell you. Education was very important in my family. Um, My parents, well, first of all, my my mom graduated from college at a time when many women didn't go to college. My father uh, left college to fight in World War II, Mm -hmm. went back to finish his bachelor's degree when he was in his 40s, so I was a teenager, and uh, decided he liked doing that and continued on and got a PhD. Uh, his field was not science. He was uh, music and art and literature, uh, philosophy, this sort of thing. But uh, education was very important in our family. My parents never told me I had to get certain grades. They never told me I had to study this or that or do my homework, kind of thing. Um, what they did is they created an environment in which, um, well, they encouraged me, but, uh, supported me, and. Uh, I think that's the right way, that's what I try to do with my kids, Uh, same thing. So um, I I, I guess I never really doubted that I would, you know, go to college and in fact uh, I wouldn't remember this except that I had a piece of paper floating around from when I was in high school where you had to fill out, you know, what your plans were and I had in high school had already written down the year I was going to get my PhD. So.
2: I guess i was heading in that direction what got you interested in science did that happen as a child or- it did uh,
1: although as a kid particularly you know like junior high school or high school didn't really know exactly what science was it was really just the stuff that happened in the world was cool i didn't really know there was biology or chemistry or physics whatever but just looking around at the world cool stuff happened
2: so, um, I wanted to pay attention to it, learn about it. Mm-hmm. And then you you attended MIT uh, studying yep. physics, so how did you end up there and what were you like as a college student? Well, first of all, I, I
1: didn't go to, to MIT to study physics. I actually thought I was going to be a computer guy because I was playing with computers when I was in high school and this was at a time like these days. Every high school kid plays with computers. Um, there were no desktop computers, certainly no computers you could uh, put in your pocket. This is where early 70s, uh, I was playing with computers, and writing software. So, so I thought that's what I was gonna do. Although I studied physics along the way because it was interesting and ultimately switched my major to physics uh, before I graduated. Um, what kind of student was I? Uh, I was not a good student. Oh, sorry to say, uh, I, I didn't study as much as I should have. I didn't pay as much attention to the work that I needed to do uh, as I should have. Um, at some level, that helps me now. I, I think I'm a better teacher because I know what it's like to struggle. You know, I know the things that were hard for me to learn, so I tried to figure out ways to teach students those things so that they can learn them more easily and more effectively and efficiently than I did.
2: Mm-hmm. And in, in college, what were your <clears throat> career plans? Did you think you were going to go to graduate school the whole time uh, or, or not? No, no, not at all. Um, and I
1: mean, truly, there I was, I found myself a senior in college, I'm going to graduate soon, and like, no idea what I was going to do, not at all. I can remember, this is true, it sounds like an exaggeration, I can remember laying in bed all night without sleeping, just staring at the ceiling like, looking at the heavens, tell me what to do, you know. If you tell me I should be a shoe salesman, I'll do that, I just had no clue. Now all my buddies were applying to graduate school, so I applied to graduate school, but I didn't really want to, I was done with school. so uh, I ended up taking a job in Texas working in the uh, in the oil fields of Texas, uh, so Schlumberger Well Lager, um, which was an uh, interesting uh, job and gave me a chance to experience the so-called real world, get out there. But I discovered um, something about myself while I was down in Texas. Uh, I found myself just studying physics all the time, like reading physics all the time. Like, holy crap, after a while, I just had to say, I, I should go to graduate school. Now, I had applied, as I said, I applied to graduate school. I had taken a deferred admission at Michigan. They had admitted me and I wrote to them and said, hey, I'm not ready to go to grad school. Would you hold my admission for a while? They, they agreed. So um, I had
2: that in my back pocket and left Texas and went to graduate school. Okay, and then in, in graduate school, you mentioned that you started coaching uh, rowing, so how did that yeah. happen?
1: Yeah, well, so I rowed at MIT as a freshman, and part of my sophomore year, um, I didn't know anything about rowing. I never even heard of the sport before I went to MIT. And now in those days, coaches could do something that we're not allowed to do today. Uh, the, the the freshman crew coach at MIT was allowed to go through the application information of every incoming student. And he picked out all the guys that were taller than, like, you know, six feet, kind of thing, weighed more than so many pounds. And he wrote personal letters. So I got a personal letter, from handwritten, from this coach. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of this sport, but you know, if this guy is willing to sit down and write me a letter, what the heck, I'll go check it out. So when I got to school, I went, I checked it out. I was like, wow, well, that's pretty cool. I started rowing, I loved it. Now, I got injured in my sophomore year, and the doctors told me that if I didn't quit rowing, the injury would never heal. So, okay, got to do that. I can't, I can't keep rowing, but I just love the sport. So, I went to the coach and I said, hey, give me a job in the boathouse. You know, let me do anything. And he made me his launch driver, the guy that drives the motorboat while the coach coaches. And so I got to be basically an apprentice coach. I got to see from the, from the side what people were doing and listen to what the coach was saying. Uh, so when I got to Michigan as a graduate student, um, I went and talked to the crew people. They, they had a, a crew. They didn't have a coach. So I became the first head coach of the Michigan crew. Uh, and then when I went to
2: Brandeis as a postdoc, um, I became the first head coach of the Brandeis crew. Were there any things that you learned from that coaching experience or did that translate it all into teaching later, oh, do you think? jeez. I'll tell you. In my
1: opinion, coaching is kind of a, a higher form of, of teaching. Because um, when you're coaching, everybody wants to be in the classroom, you know? That was true in a classroom, classroom. Um, yeah, I, I learned a lot about how you motivate people, how you communicate with people. Um, I think coaching has served me very well in terms of my ability to to teach.
2: And yeah, so you studied physics in school for many years and a lot of times talking to students there's a perception that physics is really difficult or... Not fun. So, did it always just come easy to you, or did you ever doubt that you were that you Come easy. It? Physics has never come easy to me. It still doesn't come easy to me. Physics is the
1: hardest thing I ever studied. Um, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, it sounds a little goofy to say, but I don't know. If, if, if it's not challenging, I, I'm not sure that, that, that that's something that, that you would want to do. Um, I, I could tell you so there I am freshman Phil Keston haven't started school yet it's the, the week before school starts in the fall and I bought all my books now later on in my career I don't think I, I did this but I actually read not only the first chapter of every book that I had, had purchased for school but I read the uh, introduction of every book oh, right. <laughs> and uh In in the introduction to my first physics book that I used in college, it said, "Problems worthy of attack prove their worth by fighting back."
2: Hmm.
1: And I, you know what that made clearly made an impression because I remember it from you know all those years ago. Um, But I think that's true that when you when you struggle with something, when you're working on something that's challenging, that's hard, and you Overcome,
2: uh, wow! Then you've accomplished a lot. Were there any Were there any moments in either college or graduate school that um, that you really remember where you had to make any big decisions that later um, impacted your life, or um, any stories from those years that you still remember today?
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you this: when I was a, a senior, I got chosen as one of three or four seniors to be undergraduate TAs for the junior level physics lab. This was the biggest course that all physics majors took. Um, It was expected that as a junior you would spend 10 to 15 hours a week in lab, another five, eight hours in your room or home studying. It was a big deal, and so I got chosen to be one of these TAs. Uh, the professor that was in charge of the lab uh, is a guy that I had known already, got to know very well as a TA uh, for him. And interesting, when I came, I went back to MIT after I was in Texas, after I was in the oil fields. Before I went off to graduate school, I came back and spent a summer at MIT pretending to be a student. Wasn't really, but pretending. And this guy gave me the equivalent of a research assistantship that he would give to a graduate student, right? Um, And he, he, he influenced me. He influenced the way I thought of myself, the way I thought of doing science. He brought me to even a higher level of just really enjoying experimental physics. I mean, you have have to recognize that there's a difference between uh, theoretical physics and experimental physics. They they go hand in hand, but very few people do both. And for me, well, I really wasn't sure where I was going to end up, but because of my relationship with this mentor, uh, this professor, I came to understand about myself that I really love playing with physics toys, you know. I really enjoyed putting my hands on something making it work um, I'll just yeah. mention parenthetically that this professor uh, who who was my mentor um, a week and a half ago won the Nobel Prize wow Can you imagine wow yeah. Ray Weiss is his name uh, Ray is one of the founding members of the experiment which discovered gravity waves a couple of years ago and I can tell you, when I worked in his lab, this was, the sum, this was the summer of 1979. Ray had two experiments in progress. I worked on one, which was a, an experiment to measure the cosmic ray background radiation. But I can remember him, just he and I, my gosh, the two of us, standing next to this other experiment that he was working on. It was about four feet long, you know. It sat on a table, and he explained to me that this was an experiment that he put together to try to measure gravity waves. And he explained to me how it worked. I remember this, and uh, and here it is now, all these years later. He's won the Nobel Prize for this, but that first experiment wasn't anywhere close to being good enough. The the experiment that actually ma- Found the gravity waves is like a thousand times, but wow. you know they kept building, building bigger, bigger. Anyway, uh, I, you know, I this is a, a set of experiences that I remember as being very significant
2: in my own development. What what point in your career when you were studying physics or working on a physics project or working for an outside organization <laughs> was the most you know, Intellectually interesting to you, and did you enjoy the most working specifically on physics?
1: I think I could I could probably pull out a couple of different pieces to answer your question, but I'm going to pull out one in particular that has a, a has a curious ending. I was a graduate student working on an experiment at the Stanford Linear Accelerator. That's where I was going to get my PhD. That was, that's where I was going to do the experiment that ultimately led to the writing of my own dissertation. I wasn't really sure what piece of physics was particularly interesting enough to do as a thesis. Uh, But I eventually came up with this idea of searching for a particle which had been theorized but there wasn't a lot of really good evidence. I went to my advisor and I said, hey, I." I want to do this search. I want to, the particle is called the delta plus plus. It's a curious particle. It has two uh, double positive charge. Most particles are either positive or negative. This was doubly charged. Uh, my advisor Ray uh, uh, was, uh, Don Meyer, great guy, uh, older physicist at the time. Don shakes his head. And she you oh, know, that, that's going to be really hard to do. I said, I know, but I think it's kind of cool. And I could do this, and I could try this approach. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people might say to someone, look, you've got to get your degree. You've got to write your dissertation. You can't be fooling around with this thing which isn't going to work. No, go do something else. But my advisor didn't say that. He said, go for it. Give it a try. And I'll tell you, I... <laughs> Busted my rump on this for four or five months. uh oh, tried everything, and two things: one, I was excited to get up every morning, cause every morning I'm like, "Wow, I can try this new thing," and the other thing is too, nothing worked. Nothing works. It was like. <laughs> emptiness. And you know what, after whatever it was, four or five months, um, I, I realized that uh, my my advisor was right. It was too hard. It wasn't going to work. And I ended up doing something else. Um, but I, I had a great time doing it. And you know what, it does tell you something. Uh, not all science works. and I mean, it's not... It's not like a physics problem at the back of the chapter where you're like, you know, doggone it, I know there's an answer. I just have to find it, right? I just have to keep working until I get the answer. Sometimes you, you, you work on something which is really interesting and you don't get anything out of it.
2: Wow, that's really interesting. How did you, moving forward, end up at Santa Clara University? I was at
1: Brandeis working, uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship postdoctoral fellowships have time limits. It's not like you can stay as long as you want. So I was coming to the end of my five years, and I had to move on. Um, I was coaching the crew at Brandeis. I desperately wanted to keep coaching. And I knew that if I stayed in the Boston area, Brandeis would keep me on as their coach, paying me the lofty princely sum of $2,000 a year, which wasn't enough to support my wife and my then little boy. So I said, gosh, is there some way that I could put together like a, a, a jigsaw puzzle of jobs to keep me in the Boston I applied for uh, the novice women's coaching position at Wellesley College. I applied for various physics positions. And uh, Bit by bit, this puzzle started to come together. Wellesley offered the coaching position. Had another little piece over here. Just needed one more piece. And I had applied for um, a sabbatical replacement job as a physics professor at Wellesley. And if they had offered me that job, even though it would have been a huge mistake because it was only a two-year position, I would have taken it because I wanted to stay in the So uh, he, here's the way things played out. That spring I have been invited to bring my crew out to San Diego 3,000 miles across the country to race in the San Diego Crew Classic. And then when that race was over, my wife flew out to Northern California. I came up because we had been out here. I've been at Slack. We have friends. And uh, so I we met each other up here to see Francis. So Sunday morning, the day before we were going to go home, I made a phone call from a pay phone. Those things don't even exist anymore. And I called Wellesley, and Wellesley told me that they had offered the job to somebody else. I was very disappointed. That night we were having dinner with an old buddy of mine from graduate school. Now this guy, I knew he was teaching physics someplace in the Bay Area. I thought it was like a a community college or something. Santa Clara Community College, I don't know. So we go have dinner with he and his wife, uh, at which I learned that in fact he's teaching at this university called Santa Clara University, but I also learned that his wife has always wanted to live in Seattle. So without telling anybody in his department, he had applied for a teaching job at Seattle University. He had been offered the job. He had accepted the job. And literally the next morning, he was going to go in and tell the chairman of the department that he was resigning. He says, so, you know, you're looking for a job. You want me to put in a good word for you? I'm like, why not? So they brought me, Santa Clara was interested, they brought me out. They could only offer me a nine-month job because it was too late in the year to do a tenure track. And, uh, they offered me the job out I came for nine months. Wow. Had to reapply for the full-time job.
2: Wow, are there any... Moments from your first couple years at Santa Clara that you still remember or any challenges teaching in those first couple years?
1: Well, I can tell you this. I had taught a little bit at Brandeis. Postdocs don't usually, but I wanted to and I told my my colleagues that I wanted to teach and so they've given me a couple of teaching assignments, but they were all upper-division classes with like five or seven students and so i didn't know for sure. I thought I wanted to teach, but I didn't know for sure how it would be and how it would go. Um, the first term I'm here, I got seventy students in an introductory physics lecture and uh, it was a, it was a blast. It was great I mean I, just, I loved it um, which was good to know. And I'll, I'll tell you, here's, you know, if there's one moment, though, that stands out, I'll tell you. I was nervous about teaching. I didn't know how to do it really or what I should do. And so I prepared all my lectures, and I would go in a class, you know, the lecture halls with the big lab bed. Go to class, I'd open up my three-ring binder with my notes, and I'd take out, like, I don't know, 10, 12 pages of notes. And I'd lay them one at a time across the table. And during the course of lecture, I'd start on the left, and I'd work my, I'd read my notes and look, and work my way across. One day, it's probably my third year here, I was teaching um, the Intermediate Quantum course, which is now Physics 34, it was Physics 7. Hard class to teach, the material is complex. Ah. Uh, went into class, opened up my three ring binder one day, and as I'm taking the notes out, I got struck by a crazy idea. I thought to myself, what if I don't take out these notes? I mean, look, I had prepared the lecture, I had thought about it, I knew what I was gonna do. What if I don't take out the pages? What if I just lecture, teach? My heart, Literally, my heart started to pound, you know? I closed the binder, I didn't take the notes out. And I just taught the material. And it was so liberating, it was so exciting. It was so great to just talk about the stuff that that was exciting to me. To think about where I wanted to go next and what I was doing and saying. Literally, since that day I've never taken out notes, ever. I mean I I have like a half a page of bullet items to make sure I cover this, this, and this, that's it, and I do, I mean, I, I probably spend three hours every day preparing to go to class, I mean, no matter how many times I've lectured on a Sunday, because uh, it's not the same lecture every time, uh, you know, do examples and whatever, so I spend, like I say, three hours every day before I go to class, but once I get to class I don't have you know my notes out um,
2: and it's great I love I love that I remember on the first day of class you mentioned that for a couple years you served as senior editor of a newsstand magazine called mm. Modern dad yeah and that, that got the class interested so I'm wondering if you could <laughs> if you could tell uh, how you got it in, into wow. that
1: so uh, the guy that founded Modern Dad magazine. His picture is on the wall in my office. and That's because he wrote for me at Brandux. Uh A few years after he graduated, he had this idea to start this magazine. And he wrote me uh, and said, I'm, I'm doing this and um, Would you be interested in this magazine? If you got this piece of literature, and he sent me like a page of like, you know, PR stuff about the magazine. I guess this is the way I am. I wrote him back and I said, look, it sounds pretty interesting, but I got to tell you, this piece of literature that you sent me is really badly written. He said, well, what would you do to fix it? So I, edited. Couple months later, he sends me another email. He says, "You know, I'm getting ready to look for some funding, and I have this packet that I put together. Uh, what do you think of this packet of information?" <laughs> and I read it. They wrote back and I said, "Look, I it's okay, but it's not very well written. Would you fix it for me?" So I said, "Yeah, I did," and. Uh, the next time he wrote to me, he said, look, we need an editor for this magazine. How would you like to do it? Um, so I I mean, I, I love writing. Uh, I never edited anything, but I learned how to edit. Uh, editing, as it turns out, is an interesting challenge if you want to do it right, especially when you're editing that, editing that kind of stuff. It's not like editing a piece of scientific writing in a journal. Uh, all the articles in those magazines were written by individuals who had their own voice, their own perspective. And it wouldn't do for me as an editor to change the voice, to change their language. I just had to fix things that needed fixing. Uh, So that that was an interesting challenge to be able to put myself into the voice of a particular author. I learned a lot from that. Uh, That was fun. Uh, It's unfortunate the magazine... Um, went under because uh, about the same time this Men's Health magazine came out, uh, and whereas we had, I could show you, I could show you issues. You know, we had like a dad pulling a kid in a wagon on the front cover. They would
2: have like, you know, half naked guys with you know muscled up, and we couldn't sell advertising. <laughs> That's funny. And around that same time, in the mid nineteen nineties, year in Santa Clara. Uh, got the magazine going and you're also working on starting your own business mm-hmm. so did you ever intend to do that and uh how did uh, you how did you get started with DocuTech?
1: you know uh, i don't know i I would have to believe that most people end up doing lots of things that they don't intend I think very few people make a plan for their life and just sort of you know stick to it uh, I didn't intend to stop start a company uh, in the in the well I was probably the ninety For I would say students have been coming up to me and saying things like, "Oh, uh, I I would like to be in a study group," or you know, "I don't live on campus, I don't know anybody to study with," that sort of thing. And I'd always go to class and say, "Hey, who wants to be in a study group?" You know. But it occurred to me that, shoot, I know how to write software. I could write some programs that would allow students to work with each other electronically. But we didn't have the web then, but we did have a campus computer and people could dial into it So I wrote this set of programs. And then I noticed the web is becoming, the, the worldwide web It's becoming a thing. You know, Budweiser commercials have a URL at the bottom on TV. And so I thought, well shoot, I should port this system to run on the web. Uh, I could, had a student who was a good coder and, and, and invited him to help me, and the two of us wrote this package based on my original code that ran off of it, and when we were done, this was late 95, we thought we had something that was pretty cool, and so I guess we were a little ahead of our time. These days, if you write any piece of software that's cool, you immediately think, oh, I'll go to business, but that wasn't the case then. But I say, we were ahead of our time. We said, hey, let's go into business. We didn't really know what that meant. But um, we just sort of felt our way through it. And I guess we did things right because little by little, we started to get people interested. We eventually started to sell licenses for the software. And fast forward a few years, um, we had 85 customers, paid customers. And these are not like, you know, Bob and Jim customers. This was like the University of Toronto with 70,000 students' customers. Uh, we had 85 customers. We had 35 orders on the books. And uh, we just, it's too much for us as two people. And this guy was my student, right? So I was the salesman. I was the. Customer support. I was so we went out and raised money, hired a national sales staff, we hired an engineering team, hired a management team, and the uh, company was uh, pretty successful. It had a great reputation, and so when we were acquired in two thousand and five. The company that bought us kept all of our product lines, kept all of our brand names because we were very well-known and had a great reputation. I think in in the mid-2005 or so, by that point, we had close to 1,000 universities using our system. We had whole countries. We had states in the United States who were our customers because uh, we developed many product lines beyond the first one. There's, pretty interesting.
2: Wow. What lessons did you learn from that experience of building the business?
1: Well, one of the things I learned is that the world of uh, industry is different from academic world. Um, Here's here's one moment that I I will always remember. So the guy that was the director of, of engineering at DocuTech was a guy who had been my student. He was a great student. And uh, he and I had been in communication after he graduated. And I told him about DocuTech. And I said, You know, if this company ever gets to be big enough that we're hiring people, you're the first guy I'm going to hire. And son of a gun, he was the first guy that I did hire. And he eventually became our director of development. So one day, uh, he and I and some of the senior members of the, of the engineering team were having a meeting about product development. And we're going back and forth with different ideas and kind of exploring things. And at some moment, Jan, Director of Development, says to me, okay, look, this is great, we've had a great conversation. But he looks at me and he says, you're the boss and we need to make a decision. You need to make a decision. Wow. That just hit me. It's like, wait a second. See, at school, when I have a group of students who whenever we're sitting around, everybody's ideas are good ideas, we're throwing it back and forth. But out there in the business world, at some point, the boss makes a decision. And that was actually it shouldn't have been, it was pretty obvious, but it was a revelation for uh, me. that when you're in the business world, you do things differently than, uh, than the academic world. I'll give you one other minor example. Um, uh, my, the guy that we had hired to be our CEO and I traveled to Utah to make a sales pitch to all of the universities in the state of Utah. This was an amazing thing. They all came together at uh, in Provo so that we could make a pitch to all of them at once, it was a big deal. And uh, I remember I got up, I make you know, making this pitch, and uh, one of the people raises his hand. And he says, "Ask me some question about how something works or something." And I'm like, oh, "That's a great question." And I'm gonna answer. I'm gonna get to that in uh, in a few minutes. So. After this meeting, uh, Nate, our um, CEO, pulls me aside, and he says, you know, you can't answer people like that. If they ask you a question, you have to answer the question when they ask it. This is a very pro- professorial approach. Oh, yes, I'm going to cover this in a few minutes, but you can't do that in the business world. And, you know, again, that struck me. as like, wow, you know, i I grew up in an environment in which, you know, there's ideas, there's discussions, there's a path from one idea to the other, but, you know, out there making that sales pitch, that wasn't the right approach. And I, those are good lessons to learn, That you know,
2: the world doesn't just work the way the academic world works. What would you tell a college student who wants to start their own business? Uh, well, uh, and this is not just a, a theoretical answer I give
1: you because I've worked with a whole lot of people who have either been interested in or have ultimately started companies that have served on the advisory board now probably half dozen companies uh, good ideas are a dime a dozen having a good idea doesn't get you nothing you got to work hard to get it uh, in fact the first person to tell me that good ideas are a dime a dozen was my brother. Uh, my brother who now probably has 20 patents in his name. And uh, it turns out the device that we were talking about, well is sort of directly in front of you. In the old days, mice had uh, cables. Now these days, mice are all wireless. And I would use a wireless mouse too, except that this one doesn't work very well. So I resurrected this wired mouse from deep inside of my junk drawer. But They all have wires, and wires always get in the way. And so I came up with what I thought was a great way to take care of the wire that was attached to my mouse. I even gave it a name, I called it the Mouse Minder. And I told my brother about it. I said, wow, I want to patent this, and it'll get rich, And he said, good ideas are a dime a dozen. If you want to do something, you have to do these things uh, in order to get to it. And of of that whole list of things that he gave me to do so that I could sell the mouse minder and make my million dollars, of all those things I did, exactly zero of them. That's why you probably haven't heard of the device and have never purchased one. about six months later, me having done nothing, my brother came to me one day with this mouse thing that's in front of you. And he said, here, these people actually did something with their idea. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it, it, look, it's self-evident, but it's true. Um, and doing something with your great idea, that's hard. That takes a lot of work. Um I didn't think of uh, originally intend to start a business, but once we got started with DocuTech, shoot, I was working at Santa Clara my fifty hours a week, and I was working at home forty hours a week on DocuTech. I mean, I was working hard because uh, if you have if you have something that you're passionate about and it's a good idea, it
2: takes a lot of work to make it real. Mm-hmm. And then moving back into your teaching at Santa Clara, I was wondering uh, what is the funniest thing that's ever happened while teaching class at Santa funniest Clara? Ever
1: well, back in the early days, uh, there was this thing, this is back when I was young enough that, that students thought of me as pseudo-peer, not you know an old geezer, which is what I am now. Um, and so they didn't hesitate to, to do goofy things in class. Uh, One year, students had 10 pizzas delivered to my class in the middle of lecture. Uh, Another year, God, how'd this go? I'm up there in the front of the room teaching and all of a sudden, this fanfare plays, music plays, the classroom stops, and and up from the back of the the lecture halls where he comes out, in the back of the lecture hall, students marched in, carrying up him, litter on their shoulders with somebody riding dressed as the pharaoh riding I came down to the class. I mean these are goofy things yeah I enjoyed those that people don't do them anymore I guess because I'm not like, like I a say geezer I figure they can't
2: be goofy in my class and what up to this point in your career would you say that you're most proud of
1: Well, I guess I can't say that I'm not proud of the fact that um, the Carnegie Foundation named me as the California Professor of the Year some years ago. That was quite an honor. Um, Every year they select certain faculty to be professors of the year. In California, since there are so many universities, think probably there are three to five hundred faculty nominated for that honor every year. they pick me hmm. Council for the Advancement and support
2: of Education at the Carnegie Foundation awesome so. Hmm. To wrap up here, I'd like to ask yeah. a couple of shorter questions sure. um, that I'd love to hear. So, first of all, what do you consider to be the greatest scientific discovery of all time?
1: No, that's not a fair question. I mean, each scientist, I mean, for example, you know, Archimedes understanding buoyancy, that was a fantastic thing for his time. Um our understanding of electricity and magnetism revolves around a couple of fundamental discoveries. If you look at the development of modern physics again, some fundamental discoveries. Uh, compton realizing that photons carry momentum, for example. Um, and c- candidly, I'll say the discovery of quarks. The top quark in particular, some that I have a little bit something to do with, gravity waves, all of these are incredible. I'm not going to, you're not going to okay. make me
2: pick one. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, what What advice would you give to a first year student starting college? Study what you're interested in.
1: Get a good education by studying things that interest and excite you. What's book should every college student read? Guns, Germs, and Steel by by uh, Jared Diamond.
2: If you could send a message to everyone in the United States, what would you say? Educators. What does an ideal Saturday look like for you?
1: Ah! <laughs> uh, I would... Say it includes a baseball game or a basketball college basketball game. Would include uh, doing some
2: writing, Mm -hmm. having a good dinner with my wife. Is there any purchase of less than fifty dollars that you've made recently that's really had a positive impact on your life? You do seem to love gadgets. Well, I do
1: love gadgets. Unfortunately, these days, gadgets tend to be more than $50. Okay, if you allow me to go twice that much. Okay, you can do $100. $100, hands down, hands down, the Bluetooth pen that I use to write on
2: my iPad. Oh, my gosh. Changed my life. (laughs) If you could have dinner with anyone from history, who would it be? Carl Sagan. And finally, I don't think it would be fair to end this interview without asking you an estimation problem. Oh, God. Uh, So, I'm wondering if you could um, let me know about how many French fries are consumed by Santa Clara students in Benson Dining Hall each year. Each year? Well,
1: if I were going to do that problem,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I would start by asking how many students eat Benson every day? And I'm gonna guess that that's probably, uh, I mean there were these days, 1,300 students in the incoming class, uh, large fraction of them plus sophomores. I'd say probably on a given day, 2,000 students have a meal where you could get french fries some significant fraction of them do get french fries, maybe 25%. Um, so take a quarter of 2,000, that's 500. Um, so 500 people get french fries. When you get an order of french fries, you have how many? Uh, let's go 50. So that's 50 times 500, that's 25,000 french fries a day. multiplied by the number of days of the year, that's my answer.
2: Hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciated it. My pleasure, Spark.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show today. I want to give a special shout out to Miles Elliott for producing the introduction and outro music. And we will be back soon with another episode. So please email me if you have any suggestions and check out the website at voicesofsantaclara.wordpress.com. I'll see you soon.